Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, God, that we can open your word right now. I pray, God, even now as we as we read it, as we read your word, God, that you would open our eyes to glorious things. Help us to see, Lord. God, we can read glorious, beautiful texts of Scripture. And unless you, by your spirit, open our eyes, it seems doesn't seem as glorious as it ought to. So please, God, help us. God, help me to preach your word. God, you're worthy of praise. You're worthy of all praise and glory. So help me to preach your word, God, and draw out these things from from the scriptures that, that make you look good, Lord, because you are good. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. You can get your eyes on it here. This is the consummation of all things. Verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, Murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with a reed. 12,000 furlongs, its length, breadth, and height. That's about 1,500 miles. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, 
of an angel. It's about 73 yards. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. I'm banking on y'all not knowing how to say those either. Verse 21, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. But I saw I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of a sun or of the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter, in, in, enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river of water of life. Clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was a tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face. And his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. I'm going to stop there. Praise the Lord for his word. Okay, let me say a few things. We're going to dig into this passage, okay? Revelation 21.1 to 22.5 that we just read, the consummation of all things. Before we do that, I want you to notice, and I think you did notice that if you're reading along with me, that's not the end of the Bible. So I'm talking about the consummation of all things, and yet you've got 22 verse 6 all the way to the end of the chapter is actually the end of the Bible, the end of Revelation, okay? And here's what happens. Here's how the Bible ends. It ends with showing you, here's how it's all going to shake out for the believers, okay? Here's how, there's the consummation of all things. And then that last section that we did not read, he's just telling you, Jesus says, hey, I'm coming back quickly. He says it over and over again. Look at verse 7. Behold, I'm coming quickly, says Jesus. Verse 12, and behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me. Verse 20, and he who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming quickly. So that's how the Bible con concludes with Jesus emphatically saying, I'm coming back quickly. OK, do you know that that he's coming back very quickly? The one who took on flesh, God, who is eternally God ever from everlasting to everlasting. He's God and he takes humanity unto himself and he lives a perfect, righteous life. And he's killed and he's slaughtered for your sins and my sins. And then he, he rises from the grave. He ascends on high 
walks through those everlasting gates that we just read about, and then he comes before the throne of God and he hears, sit at my right hand until your enemies are made your footstool. And that one seated at the right hand of God one day is going to return. And he says three times, this in fact, this is what he's trying to get across at the very end of the Bible. I'm coming back quickly. I'm coming back. The Lord Jesus is coming back. Matthew 24, 30 says he's coming back with power and great glory. With power and great glory. He's coming back to give eternal salvation and joy to those who are his. And eternal misery and destruction to those who reject him. He's going to come back with so much force that the man of sin, like Satan's sidekick, the man of sin, is going to be obliterated with the brightness of his coming according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It says all the tribes of the earth are going to mourn that they had rejected this one. There's going to be people that name the name of Christ, but their hearts have no concern for Jesus, and they're going to be caught off guard in that day. And there's going to be some people that look on with adoration and praise that the Lamb has come. According to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. So let me tell you this. We're about to dig into the consummation of all things. Even if you're unsure, okay, we've got, we know this. If you're unsure about what's going to happen in between His coming and when it's all said and done and how it all shakes out for the believer, here's what you know from what we just read. He's coming back. And there's going to be a consummation of all things at the very end. And that's where we're going to be mainly today. And I, want you to, I just want to say this from the front end. It is going to be really good. I mean, real good for you who are in Christ Jesus. Really, really good. I need another word. Really good. Okay. In fact, when you read, think about this. John, we just read it. He gets this vision of the consummation of all things. How it's all going to go down in the end. He gets this vision. And then at the very end, Jesus says, I'm coming back, I'm coming back, I'm coming back. And John knows, man, the sooner he comes back, the sooner I get to the consummation of all things. So you know how he ends it? Revelation twenty two twenty. he says, even so, come Lord Jesus. This is going to be good. Okay? This is going to be really, really good. Now, before we dig in, okay, to what we just read, the culmination, the end of it all. I want you to see this contrast. When you go to back to Revelation chapter 20, what you have in Revelation 20 is the consummation of all things for those who are not in Christ. Okay? For those who have rejected Jesus. So what you have here in Revelation 20, you've got destruction, eternal destruction and despair. And in chapter 21, for those who are in Christ, has eternal joy, eternal gladness, eternal life. In Revelation chapter 20, this is like Satan's last ditch effort to try to destroy the bride of Christ. And it says fire comes down from heaven in verse 9 and 10 and destroys them and Satan is cast into the lake of fire where he's tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the end of it all for him. And in Revelation 20, it shows people, men and women being judged for what they had done. And those who are outside of Christ, it says that, that they will be cast into the lake of fire, the same lake of fire Satan's thrown into, and they'll be tormented day and night, forever and ever. This is the end of all things for all those who are unconcerned with Jesus. And I want to take that just for a second, and I want to plead, okay? I don't know everyone here, but I want to plead with you. you if you're here and you refuse Him, you refuse Jesus, I'm pleading with you, don't ignore this. That there's an end of all things for everyone. And for those who are outside of Christ, it's, it's described as 
the lake of fire, torment day and night forever and ever. Don't ignore this. And anybody here who's still in limbo over what to do with Jesus and you don't know, do not linger there very long. John 3.36 says, The wrath of God abides over you and can be dropped at any moment. Don't linger there. I'm pleading with you. Don't linger there. And if you're here and you confess Jesus with your mouth, but really in your heart, it's unconcerned. There's nothing in the heart. Your heart's far from Christ in reality. I'm pleading with you, stop playing games with Christianity. You cannot play games with this. Okay? Flee the wrath to come. So Revelation 20 tells us the end of all things for those outside of Christ, those that are not in the book of life. And then you get to Revelation chapter 21. And it says, but hey, you who are in the book of life, you that are, your names are written in the book of life, here it is. And we just read about it, okay? The end of all things for you who are in the book of life. So let's ask this question real quick. Is your name in the book? Is your name, according to Revelation 20:15, is your name in that book? And let me ask a question that might help you frame this up, okay? Paul asked a question. At the end of Romans 7, Paul said this. He said, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So let me throw this question. Is your name in the book? Where here, Here's a question, okay, to consider. When you think about your wretchedness in your sin, and you think about that coming judgment that's coming that, that I just referred to in Revelation 20, what brings you comfort? If you don't believe that you're wretched, just as Paul said, in your sin, and that you need something to bring you comfort, then your name's probably not in the book. If when you think, okay, where's my comfort? I know that I'm a wretched sinner and I know there's a coming judgment. What's my comfort? Well, I turn my life around. I'm a good guy. I'm a good, I'm a good girl. I go to church. If that's your comfort, your name is not in the book of life. But if when you think of your wretchedness, like Paul did in Romans 7, and you think of your wretchedness and sin and the judgment to come, and here's what just comes billowing out of your heart, the same thing that came exploding out of Paul's heart, I thank God through Christ Jesus, my Lord, who died for me, who intercedes on my behalf, who's going to come again one day and receive me to Himself. If it just comes exploding out of your heart, Christ Jesus is my comfort when I think of my wretchedness and the coming judgment, then there's a good possibility your name is in the book. It's real faith in Jesus. Real faith in Jesus that gets someone's name, assures you that your name is in the book of life. So listen, as we look at these scriptures, okay? If you have faith in Christ, in just a minute, okay, all, those, all you my brothers and sisters whose name is in the book of life, I want to preach the end of all things to you. I, I'm asking God to show us glorious things from His Word about what's coming for you who are in Christ Jesus. And I encourage you to find great comfort from it. When we read these things, let me encourage you in this. We've read them, and as, as we look back over these things, don't, don't let confusion, confusion grip you over things that you don't understand out of what we just read. Okay? John is seeing something and trying to describe something to us that cannot be described with human words. It can't be described with words and he's trying to describe it. So when you see something a little confusing there, don't get out of whack, okay? But instead, be mesmerized by what we do understand, what we do see out of the culmination of all things found in Revelation 21.1 to 22.5. Be 
amazed, excited over the things that are here found in heaven and what's to come in the world to come. Okay, one more quick point of introduction here before we get into this. What comes to your mind, and this question is on your sheet, what comes to your mind when you think of the word heaven? Okay, so I say heaven, or you think of what it's going to be like when you die, or at the end of all things, at the coming of Christ. When you think about that, what comes to your mind? What jumps into your mind when you hear heaven? Most people have extremely unhealthy thoughts. Maybe a cartoon of Tom and Jerry sitting on a cloud, halo, playing a harp. That's not it. It's a bad idea. Or maybe you have this idea of a mechanical, uh, emotionless, boring existence. And I'm pleading with you, don't think that way. God is not boring. Psalm 16 says in in his presence at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. It is not boring. Or maybe maybe you've had thoughts like this before. In heaven will be what? These disembodied, no bodies, disembodied spirits just floating around in some sort of a holy haze. I encourage you, don't think that way. Okay, we know from what we've already looked at in the scriptures that Christ in a real body though glorified, ascended to the right hand of God. And He's there right now in a, in a real body that's glorified. And according to the Scriptures, like 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord's going to descend from heaven one day with a shout, the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead that are in Christ are going to rise up out of the ground. Real bodies you will have. Don't think disembodied spirits floating around. Real bodies you will have, though glorified like Christ. Heaven is a real place. It describes in what we just read, the capital city, it speaks about it having walls. This is not a cosmic nirvana. Okay? It's a real place. Wrap your mind around that, okay, as best you can. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to try to allow, we just read it, the culmination of all things, the consummation of all things. And we're going to try to allow these verses to clear some things up for us about heaven. Be mesmerized, okay? Now, let me say this quickly. That's the way, that's thinking, okay? The way you should think about heaven. But let me add this on. How do you feel about it? How do you feel it? When you think about heaven, how do you feel about it? Okay? And I want to encourage you, don't let your culture wreck you on this. Your culture will mess you up. And I've brought an example here. Okay? Here's an example out of our culture. This is a country music star named Kenny Chesney, who a lot of people in the Bible Belt love. Listen to this song. This ought to make you in Christ want to puke. Preacher told me last Sunday morning, son, you better start living right. You need to quit the women and whiskey and carrying on all night. Don't you want to hear him call your name when you're standing at the pearly gates? I told the preacher, yes, I do. But I hope they don't call today. I ain't ready. Everybody wants to go to heaven, have a mansion high above the clouds. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go right now. That would make him want to throw up. Say, preacher, maybe you didn't see me throw an extra 20 in the plate. There's one for everything I did last night and one for me through today. Here's a 10 to help you remember next time you got the good Lord's ear. Say, tell him I'm coming, but there ain't no hurry. I'm having fun down here. Don't you know that everybody wants to go to heaven, get their wings and fly around. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go right now. Someday I want to see those streets of gold, he says, in my halo. 
But I wouldn't mind waiting at least a hundred years or so. Everybody wants to go to heaven. It beats the other place, ain't no doubt. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go right now. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Hallelujah, let me hear you shout. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go right now. I think I speak for the crowd. He don't speak for me. It's a lie. If you have, as every Christian that has heard, if you've heard this, red flags ought to be flying off in your mind. And if you're a Christian and you love to sing this song, shame on you. Okay, do this with it. Okay, that's Kenny's view. What about the saints in the Bible? What about the saints in the Bible? Listen to this. What did Paul think about heaven? Philippians 1, 21 through 23, he said this, to die is gain. He said to depart and be with Christ is far better than anything on this earth. That's Paul. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, if this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands that's eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. He says, I'm earnestly desiring to be clothed with that habitation from heaven. That's far different than Kenny. David, saint of old, David said this in Psalm 17, 15. Listen to this. He says, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I'll be satisfied when I awaken your likeness. He said, I'm satisfied with nothing on this earth. I'll be satisfied when I see your face. He is also, David's also the one that said, the only thing that he desires on this earth is to just sit in the temple of the Lord and to behold the beauty of God and inquire in his temple. That's all he wanted. That's all he wanted. He desired that. He longed for heaven. Romans chapter 8 says that all of creation is eagerly waiting and groaning Eagerly waiting and groaning with desire, with desire for the, the eternal state that's coming. All of creation is doing that. You get what I'm saying here? You see the contrast? So where are you at on this? Are you like the country music star? Or are you like these men in the Bible longing for heaven? Longing for what we just read about in Revelation 21.1 to 22.5. We need biblical thoughts and biblical emotions about this future state. It affects everything. It affects your time. It affects how you deal with your money. It affects how you deal with sufferings. Listen to Romans 8, 18. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. It affects everything what you see about heaven. There's a little saying I've heard that you can't be too heavenly, you can be too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. Nonsense. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. He said, if you read history, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most, pre excuse me, who did most for the present world. He said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most on the next world. It is since Christians have, have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. That's his point of view. What about John Bunyan? He wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress. And in part of that book, you got two pilgrims walking. They're headed toward the celestial city, which is like heaven. And one of the pilgrims looks over at the other pilgrim. And this is what he says. When do you find yourself in the most wholesome and most vigorous state? And guess what the other pilgrim says? 
He says, when I think of the place to which I'm going, John Bunyan got this. When my eyes are on eternity, when I know it's coming, he's saying that's when I'm my most vigorous, most, most healthy state for the Lord. When we get a glimpse of our eternal abode, it makes us loosen our grip on this earth. And we start saying things like, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on this earth that I desire beside you. So where can we get a glimpse of this eternity to stir up our minds, stir up our hearts, our thoughts, our emotions so that we think and feel rightly about the future state? Well, we just read it. Revelation 21.1 to 22.5. So we're about to dig into it. That was a really long introduction. Okay. Our eternal home. Our eternal home described in what we just read, what we're about to look at. It can be broken down into three sections. You should see it on your sheet. Three sections. First section is chapter 21, verse 1 through 8. And that's an overview. What he gives, what, what, uh, what God gives John in Revelation 21, verse 1 through 8, is an overview of our eternal home. The new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven into this new universe. And then, through the rest of chapter 21, verse 9 through 27... We get a zoomed in view of this capital city of heaven, the new Jerusalem. And we get the view from the outside. And then when you get into chapter 22, verse 1 through 5, you get a zoomed in view of this new Jerusalem, this capital city, and you get the view from the inside. Okay? So this is kind of where we're headed, three different sections. Okay, chapter 21, verse 1 and 2. So John gets to see it. This thing that people all through the Bible are so excited about, who, this thing that you ought to be excited about, he gets a vision of it, and what does he see? He sees a new heavens and a new earth because the first heavens and the first earth had passed away, he says. It's passed away. So the first heavens, first earth will pass away. This has to happen because according to Romans 8.20, when sin came into this world, this world was subjected to futility. Cursed be the ground for your sake. This has to happen that the first heaven, first earth will pass away. Even in Job, Job 15, 15 says, even the heavens are not pure in your sight. Even the heavens are not pure in the sight of God. Listen to this. This was talked about in the Old Testament. The first heavens, first earth passing away. Psalm 102, 25 says, of old, you laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Jesus said in Luke 21, 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will endure forever. My words will by no means pass away. So I don't know exactly what this is going to look like when this universe that we live in passes away, but I know it's going to be incredible. It's going to be powerful. Listen to the description in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. This is going to be powerful. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. In Psalm 46.6, it says the Lord opened His mouth and the earth melted. It's all going to pass away. And right after this terrifying event... It's going to, this terrifying event is going to usher in a new heavens and a new earth. A new heavens 
and a new earth according to Revelation 21.1. And this word new, a new heavens and a new earth, the idea it's giving you is, is quality. It's going to be new in quality. or It's going to be better. It's going to be different. So we're not just talking about new as in this is the next heavens and the next earth. As in just progressing. This is just the next one like the one we have. But this is going to be different than anything we've ever seen before. A new heavens and a new earth. In fact, when you read Isaiah 65, it says that this new heavens and new earth is going to be so glorious that we're not even going to remember that one, that universe which has passed away. Isaiah 65, 17, listen to it. I create a new heavens and a new earth and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. As you keep reading about the new heavens and new earth there in Isaiah 65, it tells you what your response ought to be. And it says you ought to rejoice and be glad forever and ever and ever. It's glorious. It's new heavens and it's new earth. The new heavens and new earth, it's like nothing. It's, like, it's not like anything we've ever seen in our lives, okay? No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor, nor has it entered into the heart of man things which God has prepared for those who love Him. In fact, verse 1 says, and there was no sea. And there was no sea. This is not like anything we've ever seen before. Our earth is three quarters water. And here it says, there's no sea. This is amazing. The new heavens and new earth, it will not be defiled by sin. It will not be defiled by sin. Listen to 2 Peter 3.13. We look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Righteousness dwells here. No sin. Sin is done away with. The new heavens and the new earth will endure forever. It will be eternal. Isaiah 66, 22. The new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord. It will remain before me, says the Lord. So this is amazing. Okay? So if the angels were shouting for joy in Genesis chapter 1 over the first creation, and they were... According to Job 38, what's it going to be like when this, when this thing passes away and there comes a new heavens and a new earth? What's it going to be like? These angels are going to be going ballistic. And guess what? We'll be there with them, praising God for what He's doing. After it says a new heavens and a new earth, what does it say? Then John saw a holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, descending out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her, for her husband. So we see this city. So see the picture. The universe as we know it passed away. New heavens, new earth created by God. And then this city descends out of heaven from God and sits down in this new universe. What is this city? What is this holy city? This is the city that it says Abraham was looking forward to. Hebrews 11.10 says this. He, Abraham, waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. This is a place built by God. The saints of old, according to Hebrews 11.16, it says that they desired a better. That is a heavenly country. And God wasn't ashamed to be called their God. You know why? He prepared a city for them. He's prepared a city for them. Hebrews eleven sixteen. Listen to the description of this city in Hebrews chapter 12. Just try to grab this. Listen to this. This is exalted. Hebrews 12, 22. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, 
and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better, a better word than the blood of Abel. Here we don't have a continuing city. We don't have an enduring city, but we seek that city which is to come. Hebrews 13, 14. So what's going on here, okay? What is this city? This is a place that the resurrected Jesus ascended on high. And if you remember, we've talked about this. He ascends on high and he ascends into heaven. He walks up to these gates that we read about. He says, be lifted up, you everlasting door. Walks to the throne room of God and he gets told, sit at my right hand until your enemies are made your footstool. It's that place. And that place is going to descend out of heaven into this new universe. Jesus in John 14 called it the Father's house. He said, in my Father's house are many rooms. That's not just a cutesy verse that you put on a coffee cup. It's a real truth. In His Father's house, Jesus says, are many rooms. And He went to prepare a place for us. And that's exactly what He's doing right now. One day Jesus will return to this earth. The old heavens and earth will pass away. And He'll create a new heavens and earth. And that place which He is in now will descend out of heaven into this new universe. Heaven as we know it will descend into the new universe. This city, how is it described in verse 2? As a bride... Look at how it's described. As a bride adorned for her husband. Why is it described that way? Why is, the, why is this new holy city described as a bride dressed up for her husband? Because those who dwell in this city are going to be those who are the bride of Christ Jesus. All through the Bible, Christ is seen as the husband and his people, the church, are seen as the bride. And we're going to dwell there forever with him. Think of the closeness that means with Christ. Like a husband and his wife. This nearness that we'll have with Jesus in this place. It's incredible. Verse 3 and 4 of chapter 21. Here's what we see next. And I want you to catch this, okay? Because here's the thing. In all three sections, all the way through this, this unfolding of this place that's coming, there's a main focal point the whole way through. In every single section that I, I mentioned to you, three sections that we're looking at here, every section there is a main focal point, and it's Christ, and it's the presence of God. It's not streets of gold or mansions. It's that God will be there. His presence will dwell there. We're going to see Christ's face, and you're going to see that all the way through this section. That's the highlight. That's the focal point. And you see it right here. Here's what we see in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, here's this loud voice, this booming voice out of heaven. It's not God's voice. He'll speak in a minute. Maybe it's an angel. But this loud voice from heaven, and what does he say? What does he say? Verse 3. He says, behold, the tabernacle of God, or the dwelling place of God. The tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. So this loud voice from heaven, he's astonished. Do you hear it? He, he's just astonished. God is going to dwell with men. He's so astonished. I don't know if you noticed it, but he repeated himself three times. Think of the three things he just said. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He's amazed. Next phrase. And he will dwell with them. He just said that. He will dwell with them and they shall be His people. 
Next phrase, God himself will be with them. He just said that and be their God. He's just repeating himself. He can't believe it that God himself is going to dwell with men. And this is the focal point of what we're looking at. This is the ultimate blessing of the gospel, right? First Peter 318, Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Jesus will be there in his glorified body. Remember Revelation 1. When you read Revelation 1, what did you see? John, who walked with Jesus on this earth, comes before Jesus and he hits his face. He falls down like a dead man. Why? Because he sees one whose eyes are like a flame of fire. And his, his face is shining like the sun. Okay? By the way, we're going to read in a minute that Jesus Christ illuminates this place. Right there in Revelation 1, it says his face is shining like the sun. His voice is like the sound of many waters, rumbling like Niagara Falls. So this is what we have. We've got the glorified Jesus there. We'll be there in our glorified bodies. And listen, when you see that, you're not going to want to go anywhere else. Think about Peter. You remember at the Mount of Transfiguration? Remember that? Peter got a little glimpse of this. He's with Jesus. Being transfigured, he's being changed. And just a little bit of glimpse of this comes out before he, he's glorified. And what does Peter see? He sees Jesus' face and it says it's shining like the sun. And his clothes are like just shining bright white like no launder on this earth could ever do. And what does Peter say? God, can we build some places and stay here? He just wants to stay here. He don't want to go anywhere. You get that? When you see this. When you see the full thing, full-fledged glory of God shining in your face, you're not going to want to go anywhere else. This is awesome. Okay. The highest joy of heaven. Verse 3 shows us the highest joy of heaven. That we're going to actually dwell with God. In His presence, Psalm 1611, in His presence is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. So get this. We're going to dwell with the majestic one. We're going to dwell with the glorious one. With the magnificent one. And he's not going to hate us. And he's not even going to be indifferent toward us. Like, yes, I let you dwell with me. I'm almighty God and you get to be with me. It's not, he's not even indifferent towards you. But what does he do? And look at verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He loves you. You're going to dwell with Him and He doesn't hate you. He's not indifferent towards you, but He loves you. He's going to wipe away every tear from your eyes. He's full of compassion toward you. And you're going to dwell with the Mighty One. And this loud voice of heaven, in verse 4, He begins to describe, this loud voice, He starts to describe what this place is like that John sees. Okay? And, And how does He describe it? And if you'll notice, He's going to describe it by saying what's not there. As if to say, if I try to tell you what is here, you can't comprehend it, but let me just tell you what's not going to be there. Okay? And look at what he says. He describes in verse 4 like this. No more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. He describes the holy city of heaven by things that are not going to be there. There's not going to be any death there, but there's going to be eternal, abundant life. There will be no sorrow there, but joy and pleasure forevermore. There will be no crying there. Maybe tears of joy, not sad cries. There's going to be no pain there. 
Are you experiencing pain right now? Physical pain, emotional pain, no pain in heaven. None at all is done away with. And I don't even mean going from pain to numbness like some drugs may give you. Or from pain to I forgot my pain like alcoholism might get you. But I'm talking pain into pleasures like you have never experienced. No man has ever experienced on this earth. No pain. That's what it says in verse 4. Alright, when you get to verse 5, here's what happens. Revelation 21.5 John has told us what he saw. The loud voice from heaven has interpreted it, said this is what is going on here in this new Jerusalem. And now God himself is going to speak starting in verse 5. And what does God say? He says, behold, I make all things new. So heaven has been described by what's not there. Now God's going to say what is there. I made it and it's new. I make all things new. The universe as we know it right now, when you look at it, it's for the glory of God. It's for the glory of God, and it leaves you awestruck. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when you see that, that world to come, which is more glorious in infinite ways? And then God says this to John, and this part kind of made me laugh. He says, He said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. So here's John. He's seeing the stuff, and it's so glorious what's in his eyes. He just can't believe what he's seeing that he forgets to write. And God has to tell him, write, for these things are faithful and true. A little bit later, John, this is the apostle who knows better. He's so, his brain's just fried from what he's seeing that he falls down at the end of this and worships an angel. He knows better than that. But he's so messed up over what he's seeing. This is going to be glorious. Glorious new heavens, new earth, and new Jerusalem. And then what does God say in verse 6? And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It's done, he says. This is the consummation of all things. It's done. God has made a way for man to dwell with God forever. That we get to dwell with the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha, first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega, the last letter in the Greek alphabet. The idea is everything originates in God and everything's summed up in Him. And we get to dwell with Him forever. In a peaceful and joyful habitation. Are you thirsty for Jesus? Are you thirsty for Jesus? If so, you will be there. The end of verse 6 says, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Are you an overcomer? Verse, look at verse 7. He who overcomes, or some of your versions says conquers. Are you a conqueror? He who overcomes, he who conquers, shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Are you an overcomer? Listen to Romans 8, 37. We are more than conquerors, or more than overcomers. We are more than conquerors, more than overcomers. How? Through him who loved us. If your eyes are on the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, you are an overcomer. You're a conqueror and you'll be with him, he says. You will inherit these things. And it says that you'll actually be a child of this king. You'll be in a father-son, father-daughter type relationship with him. And in verse 8, we're reminded of something. Look at verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Anybody here ever failed in any of these things? Yes, everyone has. 
shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is a second death. This shows you this is what we all deserve. This was our track. This is our trajectory where we were all headed and the Son of God stepped in and died for us. All praise to the Son of God who saves us from the second death and gives us eternal joy with Him in heaven. This is the overview. Right, let's zone in for a second on the capital city. <clears throat> when you get to verse 9 through 27, this is the rest of the chapter, chapter 21. What happens is an angel takes John up on this great high mountain and he gives him a view from the outside of this city that's descended where Christ is now, that descended out of heaven from God and landed in this new universe. Okay? And what's the first thing that John notices about this place? Look at verse 11. Having the glory of God. First thing he notices, man, this city is just radiating with the glory of God. Then he turns the corner and he tries to describe what he's seeing. And it's really funny when people do this in the Bible. They're seeing these things that are beyond words and they start trying to describe it. And we're just going, they're saying it's like, and they can't find the word. It's like this. And they're just trying to find the words for it. And look how he tries to describe it in verse 11. Having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone. Like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. So it says, it's like this, it's just like a, I'm looking at this city going, this is just like a precious stone. He says jasper, and we think like a red jasper stone. That's what I think of. And, and he says here though, no, not like that. Clear as crystal. This thing's just radiating, clear as crystal, radiating the glory of God. I think of like a huge diamond just radiating the light of the glory of God. As he attempts to describe it here. And then what happens is you get into the rest of this section. We're not going to spend as much time here. Verse 12 through 21. What you see is he starts unfolding you the construction of this city. He tells you about its walls. About its gates. About its foundations. About its streets. He starts to unfold what this new Jerusalem looks like. And here's what you get. It has great and high walls. It's... I'll talk about this in a minute. It's ridiculous, okay? Great and high walls. We'll get there in a minute. It has 12 gates. It's laid out like a square. North, south, east, and west, three gates on each side. It has 12 gates, 12 angels at those gates. Can you imagine Jesus walking up into, to, before these gates saying, be lifted up, you everlasting doors, in front of the angels? It has 12, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel written on those gates. You want to know Why? Well, you came to the wrong sermon. I don't know. We can assume, I'm kidding. We can assume that this represents the saints of old. And in a minute, it's going to say the 12 apostles representing the, the saints of the new covenant. But here's the point. Here's what blows me away. You're going to read it and you'll know. You're going to read this in this city and you're going to know. You're going to see it, read it, and you're going to know why it's there. And you won't have to hear my assumption. What else is there? You've got 12 foundations as described. You've got the names of the 12 apostles on those foundations, and we're actually going to read them. But when you get to verse 15, this measuring stick gets given to an angel, and he starts to measure this place. And what's supposed to happen? There's, there's some different you know, thoughts on this from different people, but you're supposed to be awestruck when you see what, what, what we're about to read here, okay? He starts measuring this thing, okay? And how does he measure it? It's, 12, it's, it's this big, huge cube. I mean, just a huge cube. It's the same distance, long as wide as high. And it says 12,000 furlongs, or some of your versions say stadia. That's 1,500 miles. That's Maine to Florida. Long. Maine to Florida. Wide. And get this. Maine to Florida. 
high. This is a huge cue. This is like nothing you can even imagine, okay, that is described in verse 15 and in the following verses. And here's the point. Here's the main point. This is like a massive holy of holies. Say, so why do you say that? Well, because the, the new heavens and new earth is described in this section like the tabernacle of God, okay? It's like this temple. And when you read about the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament, it's laid out like this cube. Same kind of thing. Width, length, height, the same. It's this cube. So what do you have here? You've got this big holy of holies where the people of God are going to dwell for all of eternity. The holy of holies that people trembled to come to because the presence of God is in that place. And nobody went in there but once a year. The place when Jesus died, that the, the, the veil was just ripped open to it. Which is the same idea when Jesus walked to those gates into this Holy of Holies. He said, be lifted up, you everlasting doors. And we're going to read a verse in a minute. We read it a minute ago that says that those gates never close again. Christ Jesus has made a way into the presence of God. A big, massive, 1,500 mile cubed presence of God where the redeemed community of God dwells. The streets of the city, or excuse me, verse 17 first says this. Then he measured his wall 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man that is of an angel. 144 cubits is 73 yards, almost football field. 73 yards. And I think he's not saying high here. That'd be a very short wall for a 1,500 mile city. Okay? So 73 yards is what we're talking about. It seems like he's measuring this thick. So imagine. Imagine thick, and a minute is going to say that they're clear as crystal. So imagine thick, almost a football field wide, 1,500 mile high, clear as crystal, glory of God just shining through it in this city. Make the Lord of the Rings city look puny. This is awesome. And this is what it's supposed to do to you. This is, this is heaven. This is the glory of God that's coming. That God is so glorious that He fills this place with His light, and there's no need for a sun, no need for moon, nothing. Just Him alone. When you get to verse 21, it says there's streets in the city and they're of pure gold. But it's not like we think of because then it says like transparent glass. Why all this transparent stuff? Think about it. He said he looked at it in verse 11 and it was like clear as crystal. And it says the walls and all the city, according to verse 18, I believe. Yeah, verse 18. It says that, that it's clear as crystal. It's like transparent glass. And then it says the streets are like transparent glass. Why all this transparency? And as you keep reading into verse 22 and 23, it says this, Revelation 21, 22, I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There's not a place to go find the presence of God, but the presence of God is there. This is the presence of God. That's what makes this heaven. He is there in verse 24, verse 23, the city had no need of a son nor a moon. Why? For the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. This is why this transparency. That's what he was seeing. John on the great and high mountain when he said, man, that looks like a, a big jewel just shining the glory of God. He was seeing Christ's face shining like the sun coming out of this humongous city. Look at verse 24. Who's going to be there? And the nations, and the nations, this is people from every nation, tribe, and tongue who love the Lord Jesus Christ. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. Jesus did that. Yes. There shall be no night there. 
They shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, but there shall by no means enter enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So, so far, highlight Christ Jesus dwells here. That's what the, that's what the loud voice from heaven was saying, right? God's dwelling with men. This is amazing. And then it gets described as this big holy of holies where the presence of God dwells. What about the interior view in chapter 22? And here's the third section. The interior view will be here just very quickly. Verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of, of water of life, clear as crystal. There it is, that clear as crystal language again. Proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was a tree of life. So the tree of life, it says, is there. Which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So you got this, this water of life, this river of water of life flowing from the throne of God, clear as crystal. And you've got this tree of life here that was mentioned over in Genesis chapter 1 through 3, right? So think about this. Genesis chapter 3. Man rebels against God and he's driven out of the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. Why? It says this in Genesis 3. Lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. This is the tree of life. When you think about it from Genesis 3, this is separation from God. Separation from God and separation from God. Lest he eat of the tree and he live in his sin forever. But instead here in Revelation 22, what do you see? Eat it and live forever. Communion with God forever and ever and ever. No more separation from God. In verse 3, it says, There shall be no more curse. Genesis chapter 3, humans sinned against God and a curse came down on them. But here there is no curse. Why? Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having Himself become a curse for us. And now we live and the curse has been taken from us and yet we still live in these bodies in this world that's marred by sin. It's marred by the curse, but not in the world to come. All the effects of the curse will be gone. Done away with. It is done. It says the throne of God here in verse 3 and 4. The throne of God and the Lamb are going to be there. And what are we going to do? We're going to serve Him. He says His servants will serve Him. His servants will worship Him. We're going to serve and worship Him. We're going to do whatever He says do. Okay? And this is going to be invigorating service to God. Not boring. When the, when the creative mind of God gets unleashed, you're going to want to serve this God. You're going to want to worship this God in this new creation. And the next verse, in verse 4, David Platt calls these the, the five most beautiful words in all the Bible. Five most beautiful words in all the Bible. Verse 4, they shall see His face. This is the, this is the chief pleasure of heaven. If you're in Christ Jesus in here, you're going to see the face of Jesus, the one who died for you. You're going to see the face of the one who rose from the dead. You're going, to, you're going to see His face. You're going to be in His presence and see the face of Christ. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, Right now we see dimly. Our sight of Christ is dim. Now I love it. Every time I get a picture of Jesus, I just know something more about my Lord. I love it. And it rejoices my soul. But it's dim. But it says, but then we're going to see face to face. What's that going to be like? It says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, now we know in part. We just know in part. And I love the part that I know, but we just know in part. But then we're going to know Him like we're known. 
He knows our sitting down. He knows our rising up. He know, he's acquainted with all our ways. And we're going to know Him like that. You're going to know the risen Lord. Jesus Christ. And this will be a fulfillment of your desires, right? Would you desire to see Christ face to face? This is going to be a fulfillment of your desires. But listen to this. This is also going to be a fulfillment of Jesus' desires. John 17, 24 says this. Father, this is Jesus praying before He went to the cross. Father, I desire, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they might see my glory. We're going to see Christ face to face. And let me read the last two verses, verse 4 and 5, and you tell me how long we're going to be there. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. He owns us. We're His. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign, how long? Forever and ever. This is the eternal state. I thought of many, many applications. You can think of a whole, bu- whole bunch of applications for what we just talked about. Let me give you one. One quick application. Just let it go along with this thought. If you're having problems desiring heaven, If you're having problems desiring the world to come, consider that maybe you're having problems desiring the person of Jesus. The presence of Jesus. Of God Himself. And what do you mean by that? What did we just read? Revelation, the culmination of all things, the consummation of all things. And what's the focal point? What's the highlight? God Himself will dwell with them. It's this holy of holies where the presence of God is. By the way, you're going to see His face. That's the focal point. You have problems desiring that, it's because you have problems desiring to see Jesus. If you find yourself not desiring heaven, dig down a little bit deeper and ask yourself, do I desire the person of Christ? Not just the things of Jesus, the stuff around Jesus, but actually Jesus Himself, the living, risen Savior. Do you desire Him? Nothing on earth I desire besides you. That's a person. Do you desire Him? Dig a little deeper. Here's how it shows itself oftentimes on earth. I give you this as a a quick piece of advice. Oftentimes, weak desires for the person of Jesus, weak desires for the presence of Jesus, shows itself oftentimes on this earth by weak prayer lives. Matthew 6.6 describes your prayer life. It says, you, when you pray, go into a secret place. The idea here is you're in a secret place, alone with God, and nobody who desires the presence of Jesus, the person of Jesus, wants to go there. You get no credit from man in the secret place, but you get alone with the Lord. You get alone with God. It also shows itself oftentimes by neglect of fasting, because what is fasting? Matthew 9, 15. He says, says, the bridegroom one day is going to be taken away, and then they will fast. So the idea of fasting is, I want you, Lord. I need you, Lord. So just think about this, okay? If you have trouble, trouble desiring heaven, could it be that deep down it's this trouble of the de- desiring, not just the things of Jesus, but Jesus himself, that I want him and him alone? Where are you at on this? Application, where are you at on this? Let me give you some questions that might help. Is it possible to love the idea of Jesus, but not Jesus himself? Maybe like the Pharisees, that the, they love the idea of the Messiah to come, but when he's standing right in front of them, they reject him. Is it possible to love the gifts and the blessings of Jesus, 
but have no affections for Jesus himself. Think of Exodus 33 and 34. Moses, God says, hey, Moses, I'll give you the land of promise. I'll give it to you. And I'll even send an angel ahead of you to destroy all your enemies. But I'm not going. And what does Moses say? I don't want it. I don't want the blessings and gifts if I don't have you, God. If your presence doesn't go with us, don't bring us up from here. Is it possible to be zealous for the mission of Jesus, but not be zealous for Jesus himself? Like Paul, Philippians 1, 21 through 23. He was zealous for the mission of Jesus, correct? And yet, what does he say? I got a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Far better. Is it possible to desire the words of Jesus, but not desire Jesus himself? You have to let the words of Jesus lead you to a person. Psalm 43, 3. God, send out your light and your truth. That's the word of God. Send out your light and your truth and let these words guide me. Let them lead me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle to God, my exceeding joy. Do you desire him as a person, the presence of Jesus? Is it possible to love singing songs about Jesus, but having no awareness of of singing to Jesus in his presence. Like Psalm 100, come into his presence with singing. Is it possible to speak often about the idea of Christ-centeredness? We speak often about the idea of Christ-centeredness, but never have a heart inflamed, a heart inflamed for Christ himself. Is that possible? I want to call us into living in a hungry expectation for the person of Jesus, for the presence of Jesus on this earth and especially in the world to come where we're going to see him face to face. I want to call us into that to live in hungry expectation of him, not just remembrance of him, although that is extremely important, but a hungry expectation to see Christ, to know Christ, the person of Jesus, and especially one day in heaven. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying throttle back on anything I just mentioned. Throttle back on the mission? No, no. Throttle back on the Word of God? Absolutely not. But let every one of these things lead you to Him and Him alone whom you're going to see face to face. And let me just leave you with a last little thought here, okay? For all of eternity, 10 million years into eternity and on past that, your main focus and joy, your supreme focus and joy will be Jesus Christ. Now, isn't it just plain silly to think about taking this short little glimpse of earth, vapor of an earth you have now, and putting your focus on anything else? 